Okay, so we are in chapter 7 of John. Uh, We have been in it for a little bit here. We had a little break there uh, last week for Christmas. Uh, We are in verses 31 through 53 today. 31 through 53. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and read. Hello. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and read verses 31 through 53 here, and we'll see what what's going on. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, "When the Christ comes." He will, not, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am going to be with you, and then I am going to, going to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to, each, to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he, <clears throat> he does not intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now on the last day, the, last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he said in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, after they heard these words, were saying, this truly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. But others were saying, surely the Christ is not coming from Galilee, is he? Has the scripture not said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a dissension occurred among the crowd because of him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken in this way. The Pharisees then replied to them, You have not been led astray too, have you? Not one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge the person unless it hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You are not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his home. You're heavy. So we start off seeing here, as we saw in the previous verses, that Jesus, when he's speaking in these crowds, that he's drawing many to him and that many are believing. But as there are Pharisees present, there are the Jew. When they say the Jews, remember we're talking of the Jewish religious leaders. They are present. 
and there are officers that are there and are supposed to arrest him. So he starts by telling them, those people that want to arrest him, I assure you, I'm going away, basically. I'm going to go away, and you're not going to be able to find me where I go. And the Jews, of course, they don't understand. They have this discussion where they're trying to figure out, what does this guy even mean? How can we not find him if we really want him? And we see as well in the crowd that truth is doing what truth always does. It divides those people between those who believe and those who do not. And this is always the case because there is no neutrality with God. There's no sitting on the fence. You're either a believer or you're not. You know, you could say, well, I'm still trying to figure it out. And that's most certainly the case for a lot of people. However, that's still not believing. So you're either believer or you're not. And that's what's happening in the crowd there. That's what happens today. The only exception I guess I would say, and this is maybe more of a salvation issue, would be children and those of no, of no mental capacity. Obviously, we're talking of accountability and such, what people can actually understand. But that's a different conversation. But the division that's going on in this crowd here is something that cannot exist in a true church body. Because we're talking about core doctrine here for a second. So to be a Christian means that you believe that Christ is the Messiah, means that you believe that Christ is our God, that He was born to human flesh, willingly, that He was hung on a cross for our sins, that He was raised in glory, and that since you are a Christian, you have pledged your allegiance to Him. He is your identity. That's being a Christian. So if there's a disagreement of something like that inside of a church body, it's not Christians disagreeing with each other, it's Christians and non-believers disagreeing with each other. Now, Nicodemus here is a good example of what happens to somebody when they have accepted the truth. There's Christian principles going on here because Nicodemus is diminishing whether he knows it or not because he's taking a stand against religious elite people whom he is a part of. This is his group. He's against those people now who are against Jesus. Now the religious leaders there, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, they know and they see it happening in the crowds that if Jesus increases which he will, that their power will decrease. They see this going on. They're threatened by it. And that's why they're meeting like this. That's why they're having these conversations. But Nicodemus appears to be losing his life or close to it. When we look at Matthew uh, 10.39, Jesus tells us the one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost, <coughs> that has lost his life on my account will find it. So what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for Nicodemus in that moment? That you must let go of who you were and become someone new. 
You have to find a new life in Christ. You can't hold on to the old part of you and embrace this new thing, this rebirth. How can you have both? Now, some people have said, and and I've said before that if this is the case, I'm truly jealous that they had converted at an early age, as a child perhaps, as a very young adult. I'm jealous, I took the long road. And they'll say, well, I don't completely understand this. But you can understand it because if you think of the way that life is for you now, life as a Christian, look at the first part of that verse in Matthew. The one who has found his life will lose it. So you can be a Christian And if you all of a sudden say, well, look, I want to do that. I want to do what the world says. I want to decide what it is that I am about. Then you will lose your life. That's what the Lord says there. You will lose your identity in Him. It is a serious topic because there is regeneration in Christ. If there's no regeneration in Christ, then we're sitting here for no reason. No reason whatsoever. We cannot hold on to the old and embrace the eternal. Not based on what the scriptures tell us. So what he said, the one who has found his life will lose it. The one who has lost his life on my account will find it. That means change. And if there is no change in a person's life, if you become a Christian and it's the same old, same old, it leaves a lot of room for skepticism on the outside. Because anybody who knows a little bit of doctrine will say, well, where's the rebirth? What's going on here? This person needs help. I need to pray for this person. What what is happening? So it takes godly confidence to do what Nicodemus is doing right here. He is in a group of hostile people, and he is taking a stand. He's watching them give these officers a tongue lashing as they come in. You know, they they see these officers. They say, have you been deceived too are you under this guy's power now because none of us none of us religious elites have fallen for this we see through what he's doing and then you got Nicodemus standing in the corner going "Hmm, well what about this Nicodemus so he speaks up he speaks up in defense of Christ and this is the person who when we first met him met Jesus in the cover of night Possibly when people would not see him meeting with him. So a transformation appears to have happened with Nicodemus. Now, this is happening on the last day of the great feast, as the the scriptures say. Jesus' timing is always significant. He never does anything just to do it. There is a significance here. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles. For seven days... They would go to the pool of Siloam. They would take in these golden pitchers water out of there. And then they would go over to the altar and they would pour the water upon the altar. And this was to remind them, to celebrate, remind them of when they were in the desert for 40 years and God provided them what they needed, specifically water at that point. Now on the eighth day, which many of us believe this is when this conversation is occurring, It changes. They no longer go for the water to pour on the altar. They then switch to praying for the water. Okay? So it changes on that day when Christ is out there standing there. 
this last day of the year, uh, excuse me, this last day, this last feast of the year. And this uh, also significantly is most likely, the la- unless I'm incorrect on this, somebody can correct me, but this, I believe, is the last feast that the Lord will spend in Jerusalem before the Passover of His death. So this is the last time that many people would hear Him before His crucifixion. And during this feast, when the water has stopped on this eighth day, prayers for water begin. And what does Jesus do? Like I said, He does everything on purpose. He invites them. He invites them, and this is an invitation that is still good today. This is an invitation that is good for you, for me, that is still needed by everybody who walks on this earth. You get no better offer from anyone, not from an angel from heaven, not from a devil down below, not from a fellow man. He invites them, and he didn't invite them with man-made laws or from the law itself. But he invites them to him for grace and mercy. Now, like I said, on the last day of this feast, this is what Jesus says. He stands out there and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So he's standing in the temple court in the time when they're praying for water. And he's crying this out, saying, if you're thirsty, come to me. And it's not a physical thirst like when the Jews were in the desert, like what they are celebrating for now. He's inviting them, and it's a broad invitation. All are called. All are wanted. His desire for everyone to come, no matter what your past is, no matter what you have done, this is a call to everyone. But, a lot of people get hung up on this because they'll say, is it really to everyone? If anyone is thirsty, well, what about those people on the other side of the political aisle? That's a big one for people. And I understand the context of it, but this is a call to everyone. If somebody has a bad view on your side of the political aisle or the other side, guess what? God can change that. It's not up to you. It doesn't matter our nationality, our class, our race, or our intelligence. This is a call for everyone. And there is a box that Christ puts here to check, though. The call is for everyone, but there is a box to check. What is it? You must be thirsty. What does he mean to thirst? Now we know on the physical level that real thirst is not fun. I remember uh, one time I took uh, Jeremiah when he was much younger on a hike over in uh, the mountains right right uh, west of Cheyenne. And I thought it was going to be this quick little hike, so we had these two little water bottles. And we get about an hour and a half into there, and I'm like, man, it's hot. This water's getting a little low. Thirst can bring a panic to you. Thirst is real on the physical level, right? Anybody who's really thirsted, you know you can get in trouble. Thirst is desperate when it is real, when it is extreme. And it means that you lack something. 
On the physical level, we know this means water. But on the spiritual level, there is something different. And this is the kind of thing that I unfortunately in my youth said, I don't need it. I'm not thirsty. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't need what you're, what you're trying to bring to me. But thirst means that you know you need it. You have come to Christ because you are thirsty. You acknowledge it, and you have come to Him for living water. So the time for the festival, the water was done. It was all a physical thing. But Christ doesn't have a time frame like that. He doesn't run in a time frame like that. You come to Him as you are, right now, and you drink. You put faith in Him. You trust in Him. You rely on Him. That's thirsting for Jesus. Okay, That is thirsting for Jesus. In the physical realm, anyone can thirst. There's no requirements for that. It's no different here though. Because all have fallen short of God's mark. Every one of us. None of us are perfect. If you claim to be perfect, you are self-deluded. All of us have that thirst. Another thirst, but we have to recognize it. Jesus says here to do that, to recognize it, to come to Him, and something remarkable will happen to you. He says, drink it and you become part of the stream of living water. That that will flow through you. Now, we can't get too hung up on the physicalities of water. This obviously means something. But you will be blessed in Christ and you will bless other people. You will receive grace. You will give grace to other people. You'll receive love. You better love other people. There's no downside to this offer. It is a change in being. But it only happens if and when you put your trust in Christ and then the Holy Spirit takes residence in you. Christ has His work. The Holy Spirit has His work as well. The Holy Spirit, that is that outflowing. That is the Spirit working all the time in us. <clears throat> now there's one other part I just kind of want to cover on this, and then I'm hoping that people have some a little bit of commentary on this, because I most certainly haven't covered everything here. But another part to consider here in what Jesus said, where He says, Therefore, uh, where it says, uh, For a little while longer I'm going to be with you, and then I'm going to Him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Some of these people, obviously, from what we read, rejected Christ. They rejected him then. They rejected him later. Some of these people did not accept what he had going on here. The message of grace. They would keep looking. Supposedly they would keep looking for the coming Christ. Since they didn't like this one. But it would be too late for them. The unbeliever who refused to find Christ. <laughs> Sounds like a dinosaur back there. <laughs> the unbeliever who refused to find Christ during their life. This is very symbolic of them as well. Because some people reject Christ all their life. They just do. Some people do. We've all known someone like that. They reject His work on the cross. 
They reject the events that took place there, the resurrection. You imagine being one of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. You reject his message. Then you reject what happens on the cross. What happened on the cross? A lot. There was a massive earthquake. The veil in the temple is torn. The veil was like this thick. It was not a tiny little veil. They rejected all these signs. And people still do that today. But he says that if you reject him, you're not going to find him after. These are people probably who are saying, I'm a good person. I'm going to get into heaven. I'm going to get into heaven because of that. But Christ says you will not find him after. These Jews rejected him to the end. We can reject him to the end as well. But if we do, we won't find him after. So, these are the kind of people nowadays that we are to plant seeds to. These are people who don't take the warning seriously. These are people who mock Christ's claims, who laugh at them. These are sad things to read about in our scriptures, and they are even sadder in person. I have said almost everything that these people probably said and more. And if I had died at that time, I would have deserved to not find Christ. But this also applies to us in another way, I think. And hopefully I'm not stretching when I try to explain this. But in a way, this relates to us as well, because we are here for just a little while. I mean, think about it. Most of the time we don't think of this but how quickly the clock goes by. Just in the day. Right? You get to the end of the day, you're like, man, that was good. That was a quick one. How many days go by in a year so fast? How many years go by in a lifetime? Uh, When I think of my own age, I turned 40 last year. uh, Because of the amount of years that most of the men in my family live, I'm at the halfway point. Uh, you know, I'll be lucky to, to make it another 40. Barring God taking me at a different time that he's ordained. So we, siblings, in the house of God here, we only have a short time on this earth. If you live 100 years, it's still a short time on this earth. So we're here for a short time with friends, with family, with enemies, with loved ones. So because the time is so short, we have to make the most of it. We have to let the living water flow. We have to love. Everybody knows the next one coming. It's the hard one. We have to forgive. That's the hardest one, it seems. We have to get closer with God. We have to get deeper in His truth. And the message continues, though it is slightly different for us, because where we are going, instead of people cannot come, they can. Where we are going, you can come as well, if you choose. That's why we have to spread the gospel. That's why we're always talking about spreading the gospel, spreading the gospel. Because people, when they hear it, they have to make a choice. But they have to hear it. Because soon for each person in, the, in their own timeline, which is set by the Lord, they will move on. 
We all know people who have. They will move on to their heavenly abode, hopefully, where there is no more tears, where there is no more pain, and where we get to live in the light of the Almighty God. And that's when and only when He decides that our time is up. So I think that what we can really pull from these Scriptures here is just that we have to let the living water flow. We have to let the Spirit flow from us. We have to be that salt of the earth. We have to represent who it is that saved us in a way that allows us to plant seeds in others. And you might plant a seed and you might not ever live to see that seed grow, but it might. You don't know what God's time frame will be. He will water. He will do the watering. We just have to plant the seed so that people will have that time with Him and that they may choose. A lot going on in there. Um, Even more that we're going to get to as we continue through John. Does anybody have any comments?